We are in a series that we are calling Discipleship Practices. Uh, maybe another way of putting it, uh, you'd probably hear it put this way in seminary, uh, the spiritual disciplines. The reason we're uh, stepping into this is discipleship practices, as we're calling it, are, are really about how we change. We, we come to Christ and then so often we, we look at our life a year, 10 years, 20 years later, and, and not much is different. And yet the Bible promises uh, change, heart change leading to life change. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians uh, exhorts people to, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And, and that's what I think these discipleship practices are about. Um, it, it, it's how we work Jesus into our lives uh, because he is the word made flesh and, and the word needs to be made flesh in us and it needs to be fleshed out of us. Uh, and so that's what this summer is, is, is hopefully going, going to teach us. And I think the psalm that we're looking at today goes a long way and how we change. Let's stand for the reading of this. I just got back from Italy. I, I'm, I'm like jet lagged. I, I got two hours of sleep last night, so if I'm doing some crazy stuff up here today, just give me a little grace. I was definitely doing some crazy stuff in the first service. All right. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither and whatever they do prospers. But not so the wicked. The wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is God's word for this morning. You can be seated. Let me first just... uh, say a word about the Psalms. The Psalms are, are, are the Bible's book of prayer. That's why the Psalms are here. All 150 Psalms, they are here to teach us how to pray. So if I ever find myself in a place where I, I, I don't know how to pray, I don't know exactly what to pray, and this happens to me quite a bit, um, I just run to the Psalms. Because the Psalms show us how to pray. They, they show us how to pray our, our fears, our worries, our anxiety. They teach us how to pray our sadness and our pain. They teach us how to pray even our depression and our despair, our despondency and our spiritual emptiness. And this is why Jews in Jesus' day are praying the Psalms every single day. In fact, most Jews in that time period uh, had these memorized. Because not everybody had a Bible uh, in, in their house. And, and, and this is what they're praying every day. And, 
And when you pray something so often or you sing something so often, uh, as I did in my tradition growing up, we had something called the Psalter hymnal, which was actually the Psalms uh, put to music. Um, you, you start to learn it. So it isn't an accident that Psalm 1 and not Psalm 23 or Psalm 40 or Psalm 86, Psalm 139, 121. I mean, those are some of my favorite psalms. I'm kind of like, why are, why are those psalms the first psalm? Why is this first, the first psalm in this book about prayer? And then when I learned that there was a lot of thought in the organization of these psalms, we can know that this psalm is first for a reason. And that should cause us to ask the question, why? Well, what is this psalm about? Verse 2, it's about meditation. And you're probably like, that doesn't get a lot of traction in my heart. Well, I'll, I'll whet your appetite a little bit. Eugene, Eugene Peterson says this. He says, if Psalm 1 is the first psalm in a whole book about prayer, then meditation and what this psalm says about meditation must be the key to prayer. So let's dive into this psalm. It begins with the word blessed. Blessed is, is the man, or blessed is the one. Blessed is the woman. Uh, we, we've talked about the word blessed. Uh, in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Uh, that is not the word here. Blessed in Gen Genesis 12 is the Hebrew word baruch, and it literally means to bend the knee. How audacious is that to think that our God promises to bend the knee to us? That's what Baruch means there. Baruch in Psalm, or bless in Psalm 1 is the Hebrew word asher. And it means to be happy, fulfilled, full of joy. And so this psalm should, should start off reading, oh, how happy and fulfilled is the one who what? who essentially does not do three things and does one hugely important thing. Before we look at this, let me just ask you this question. Are you full of joy today? Right now, as you sit in your seat, are you, are you supremely happy, satisfied, content, is your heart exploding with joy right now? According to this psalm, the first thing a supremely happy person does not do is not walk in step with the wicked. Now, this is not saying that they don't walk with the wicked. Uh, the Bible, God, over and over again, exhorts his people to do life with and among the ungodly. But this psalm literally reads, this, this part of the psalm literally reads, this person does not walk in the advice or in the counsel of the ungodly. So this is a person 
who isn't compelled by the world's values, uh, the world's worldview. Uh, This is a person who is free from the world, uh, who's free to, to not have to think like the world or become like the world around them. Can that be said of you today? Because I think about all the voices today, loud voices, telling us what's right, telling us what's wrong, telling us how we are to think, pushing us at times to conform our lives to this anti-God way of life. In fact, so often these voices say that what's evil is good and what's good is evil. Who are you listening to? See, if you are not supremely happy right now, it might be because of the truth of this song. You might be listening to the wrong voices. You might be digesting the counsel of the wicked and it's affecting you. And I'll suggest something that I've, I, I, I'm, I'm taking away from this that I'm strongly suggesting to my own soul is, is, is Rod, tune out those voices. Disregard them. Remove them from your life so that you can tune more into God and listen to what God has to say. The second thing this blessed person does, does not do, they do not stand in the way of sinners. Now, to stand in the way does not mean to oppose. It means to not walk or stand on the path that they're walking. Now, again, this this, this blessed person is, is among the ungodly because God calls us to do life with the ungodly, but to not walk the path of the ungodly. Because this psalm essentially lays before us two paths. On one path walk the godly, and on the other path walk the wicked. There is no third path, according to this psalm. In fact, these two words, uh, you have the word path in verse 2, and you have the word walk in verse 1. Those two words give us the whole Hebraic conception of what it means to be a man or a woman of God. To a Hebrew, it's all about the path. It's all about finding God's path and walking that path. In fact, this goes all the way back to Abraham. God's first words to Abraham were, Abraham, get up and start walking. And see, if we know the biblical story, we should almost get goosebumps at that part. Just to hear God say these words, because the first time that walk is used in the Bible is in Genesis 3, in the garden, where it says, and God walked in the cool of the day, he's looking for Adam and Eve, and, and both Hebrew and or Jewish and Christian scholars all believe that that was a daily occurrence. Every day, when, 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 when that cool breeze, that evening breeze came, Adam and Eve could count on God showing up to walk with them. And see, this is what made Eden a paradise. Adam and Eve, every day, walked with God. And see, when this was lost, the world became lost. So when God says to Abraham, start walking, this is God's invitation to the human race. I want to walk with you again. Which is why Abraham got up 
and walked a thousand miles, not even knowing where he's going, because that didn't matter. He was walking with God. And I love it how a little bit later, then, then God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to walk before me. And the picture here is Abraham is just like this two-year-old who's just learning to walk. Uh, you know how you put the, your, 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 your son or daughter, when they're so young and they're trying so hard to walk, you put them before you and you hold their hands. Uh, this is, Abraham, walk before me. Abraham's learning how to walk with God again. And this is all capped off, capped off at, at the end of Abraham's life uh, where God says, all right, Abraham, now I want to show you my path. I want you to walk up that mountain. I want you to offer what's most precious to you. And that day, Abraham found God's path, and he walked it. And that's the biblical picture of godliness. This is why walk is attached to all the biblical greats. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked with God. Moses, Joshua walked with God. God's people walked with God. They found God's path, and they walked it. And then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus unleashes his whole ministry with these words, come follow me. In fact, literally, uh, Jesus says, come, walk after me. Because that's what a disciple is. It's someone who walks after Jesus, who finds Jesus' path and walks it. And then you come to the letters, and, and, and Paul, as much as anybody, exhorts people over and over again to walk. A lot of times that, that word is translated live, but, but in the original language, it's walked. I mean, you can read Ephesians 4 and 5 today. I promise you it'll do good to your soul because these two chapters uh, all hang on this word walk. In 4 verse 1 of Ephesians, Paul says, I beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then in 4 verse 17, he says, don't walk like the Gentiles walk. He has to tell them that, just like Psalm 1, because the world has a walk. This is Paul saying, don't walk in the advice or the counsel of the wicked. Chapter 5, verse 8, he says, walk as children of the light. 5, verse 15, he says, be careful how you walk, not wasting your life. And then right at the heart of these two chapters, in 5, verse 2, he says, but walk as Christ walked. Because Christ came to the world to show us the path and how we are to walk it, which is why 1 John 2 says, if anyone claims to be in Christ, he or she must walk as Jesus walked. What does your walk look like? Does your walk look like Jesus? Do you even know what Jesus' walk looked like? <laughs> What path are you on today? Do you even know what path you're on? Now, there's one more thing this blessed person does not do. He or she also does not sit in the seat of mockers. What's a mocker? Well, in, the word in Hebrew means to make light of, where nothing is sacred. In fact, today, it's, it's, it's the modern Hebrew word for clown, where everything in life is a joke, even the most sacred things. 
And I was thinking about that this week. I mean, just look at our world. Can you tell me one thing that's sacred right now? Nothing right now is treated as sacred. Our bodies are no longer sacred. Marriage is no longer sacred. Gender, male and female, God created them, no longer sacred. Sex is no longer sacred. Work is no longer sacred. We have no sacred days. We have no sacred traditions. It's all being run through the mud. Why? This is the end result of wickedness. Wickedness makes a joke of the sacred things of God. It makes them cheap, worthless, which is why no one should be scratching their heads right now and wondering why so many people today feel cheap and feel worthless, why so many people are unhappy. Now, here's what the blessed person, the, the, the supremely happy person does. Verse 2. His or her delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law, he or she meditates day and night. And some of us are like, what? The law? Like, do you mean the Ten Commandments? What's well, a part of it? The word here for law in Hebrew is Torah. Torah is what Jews today call their Bible. It's, it, it, it's a reference to God's word. And in their mind, God's word isn't just a bunch of rules. It's not just a bunch of laws. It's God's instruction. It's God's direction. And so the blessed man, the blessed woman is the person who absolutely loves for God to come into their life and tell them what to do and how to live. Can you say that about yourself today? God, I love your laws. I love your precepts. See, as moderns, we just assume that we live in an, an enlightened world, a, a world that's uh, been lit up through the human mind and human ingenuity, human achievement. It's, it's, it's lit up this dark world. And I think what happens uh, consciously or subconsciously is, is, is we look around and, and we see all the things that we have invented and built and discovered and, and, and we're just fooled into thinking then that we are also then morally and spiritually enlightened as well. That somehow we, we've advanced morally and spiritually beyond all previous generations before us. But the truth is, in my opinion, we're too foolish to know how foolish we really are. See, the ancients had a more humble starting place. They actually started with the world is dark. So dark that we can't see. I don't know if you've ever been in a really dark place at night where you, where, where you honestly can't see. I had this happen one time. When I was in Northern California, uh, when my son Gabe and I were at this uh, father-son camp, and they instructed us, make sure at night you always have a flashlight. Um, of course, yeah, I didn't have a flashlight, and I had to get back to the camp, and I was doing it all alone, and my phone was dead. I couldn't see. I literally, I'm banging into trees. Uh, I literally am trying to feel my way around and 
This is precisely how the ancients thought of the world. And think of Psalm 119 then, when, when, when the psalmist says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. See, to the ancient, Torah is not just a bunch of rules, but in this dark world, Torah is God's instruction, it's God's direction, it's God's light to my dark world. I mean, even think about the first thing God did when he created the universe. His word went into that dark, dreadful darkness, and he said, let there be light. And that darkness was lit up. And then through the power of that same word, he, he spoke the entire cosmos into existence. I mean, just think about how powerful God's word actually is to create and to recreate and see, this is why Moses, at the, end of the li- at, at the end of his life, and right before uh, God's people are to enter the promised land for the first time, something that Moses will not do, Moses preaches uh, several sermons to God's people to prepare them for this. They're all found in Deuteronomy. And listen to what it says in, in, in Deuteronomy 30. He ends one of his last ser- sermons with, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death. And what he just set before them was Torah, God's word. He says, so choose life in order that you may live by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, by holding fast to him. For this is your life. Do you know that God didn't create us to just survive? That God created us for life, to be happy, to be full of joy, content, fulfilled. And so don't think that that, that God in, in his goodness When he gives us his word, he's not throwing that word at us like someone would throw a life jack to someone drowning in a storm. No, God gave us his word so we could live, so we could really live, that we could outlive everyone around us. So if you want to find God's path, here it is, it's in the book. If you want to know who you are and why you are here in this world, it's right here in this book. If you want to find life, it's in the book. If you want to find God, this is where God is. To the Jews, uh, they said, who's worthy to open the book? Because in their minds, this was the holy of holies. This is where the living word Jesus is. It's where he's placed himself. The door into God is through this book. And that's why this is the first psalm. This is why Psalm 1 is the first word on prayer in a book of prayer. Because prayer is is not something that's divorced from God's word. God's word is the catalyst of prayer. True prayer is the act of meditating on God's word. And this psalm is here to tell us this is what the happy, fulfilled, joyful person does. They meditate on Torah.
Now, what does it mean to meditate? I think here's where Eastern religion has dominated our way of looking at this word. Because when I think meditation, I, I, I think of some Buddhist monk sitting Indian style, staring at his navel, and trying to empty himself. Biblical meditation is just the opposite of that. It isn't emptying ourselves, it's filling ourselves. In fact, the Hebrew word for, for meditation is this Hebrew word haggah. Let me show you another place where this word is used. It's used in Isaiah 31, verse 4. This is what the Lord says to me as a lion growls. A great lion over its prey. I can actually picture my dog doing this. Uh, some of you can probably picture your dog doing this. Um, the word for meditate is hagah. This is what the Lord says to me as a lion hagahs. A great lion over its prey. In other words, meditation is not something passive. It's not quiet. It's not this peaceful act of emptying ourselves. Hagah means to eat. It literally means to devour. To devour what? This book. See, what, 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 what food is to our body, this word is to our soul. This is why Jesus, or, or why God says to his people in Deuteronomy 8, uh, I, I led you in this wilderness these 40 years. I, I had to make you hungry. I had to make you hungry to teach you that you do not live by just bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from my mouth. Can, can you say amen to that? When Jesus teaches us to pray, give us today our daily bread, he isn't talking just about physical, material food. He's saying, give us today our daily this. In Revelation 10, when John says to the angel, uh, give me the book, referring to, to this book, the, the angel says, all right, I'll give it to you. Here it is, but you must eat it. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, before John, had eaten this book. Do you know anyone who's eaten the book? I do. His name's Steve Refune. He's a great friend of mine. I'm on this community thread. I'm embarrassed a little bit to say what brought us all together. Okay, Michigan football. Um... <laughs> But he started reading the whole Bible in a year, and every Saturday, he gives us the life that has been birthed in him, that's just flowing out of him uh, for us to read. It's inspiring. I mean, think about food. Not every meal we eat is a feast. 
Not every meal is this delectable experience, but we eat. Why do we eat? We eat every single day throughout the day because we couldn't survive without food. It's the same thing with God's word. It's food. And sometimes it's just daily bread, but sometimes it's a feast. But like food, we need it. We desperately need it. Day and night, says the text. And this whole metaphor, this picture of, uh, of the Bible being food means uh, I, I don't read the Bible simply to learn it and to figure it out. Instead, we eat it, we chew it, we swallow it, we digest it. We're, we're to take it into our mind. We're to push it into our heart and let it get worked out in our lives. But here's one of the problems that, that, that we have, I think, especially in the Western world is is we have separated the mind and the heart. Now, Hebraically and biblically, I, mean, I don't know what this is going to do to you, but, but according to the Bible, the mind is not up here. The mind is actually down here in a person's heart. Because the heart, biblically speaking, is the mind, it's the will, it's the emotions all rolled into one. There is no separation. I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about maybe even the implications of that. Your mind being down here. This is why Paul says, confess with your mouth and believe with your heart. He's a Hebrew. You believe down here. It's why Jesus says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And listen, there is a difference between speaking from up here and speaking from down here. I mean, you speak from up here is essentially NPR radio. <laughs> if you ever listen, I just monotone. Uh, there's literally zero emotion. Why? Because mind and heart are two separate realities, and one's emotions, especially in our Western world, pollute the mind. And see, this is why most of us, when, when we read the Bible, all we're doing is we're trying to put it in our minds. We, we, we read the Bible simply as an intellectual exercise. But listen, if all we've done is just put the Bible up here in our minds, there will be no delight. There'll be no effect. There'll be no life. Eat the book. Don't just take it in with your ears. Take it in with your mouth. Don't just read it to get it all figured out, to get the right answers, the right theology. Why do you think so many Christians today are so dispassionate about what they know? It's just up here. It's just a cognitive exercise. God's word is to be eaten. It's to be taken in. We take it into our hearts. Yes, where these truths are, are shaping our minds, but they're also affecting our emotions. They're changing our desires, and thus they change our walk, how we live, and our path, what we're living for. I'll get really practical for a second. Let, let me just give you something pretty simple of how I do this. In fact, this is Martin Luther's reading method. Basically, four things he does uh, with, with the text or passage that he reads. The first thing he says, how does this text lead me to praise God? 
Because at the end of the day, everything is to praise God. Starting with the reading of the text. The second thing, what sins do I need to expose? And this is one of the things that you'll find as you read God's word. The word is going to open you up. It's going to do surgery on your heart. It's going to expose things that sometimes you don't want to see or think about that are in your life. Uh, But that's the joy of repentance, confession. So how does this text lead me to praise God? Secondly, what sins does it expose that I need to confess? Thirdly, uh, what what does this text teach me about Jesus? The whole book is about Jesus. And number four, what are the implications now of this text for my life? So I'll just give you just a thumbnail sketch of, 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 of Psalm 1. What here should cause us to praise God? Oh God, I praise you that you you want to be known by us, that that you reveal yourself to us, that that you show us your path, a path that brings life to us, happiness. Praise you, God. What about confession? I'll be honest, I don't even know where to start with that because (laughs) I could confess 10 things from just reading this psalm. God, forgive me because I'm lazy. God, forgive me because I have drifted so far from your path. God, forgive me because my roots right now are going into so many other streams than you. What does it teach us about Jesus? Jesus, you are the path. Jesus, you are the Torah. Jesus, you are the stream that the roots of my heart need and long for? What are the implications? God, would you please put me on your path? God, would you cause the roots of my heart to go deep into you? And see, this psalm tells us that this isn't a monthly thing that we do. This isn't even a weekly thing to do. This is day and night. Blessed is the one. Day and night, meditating. I'll even push this further. Psalm 40, verse 8. It's psalms like this that that inspired the Jewish people of Jesus' day to, to memorize the psalms. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart, your Torah. They didn't have... 20 copies of the Bible floating around their house. (laughs) The way they had their copy of of Torahs, they memorized it. They put it in their heart. Psalm 119. How does a young man keep his way pure? I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Are you hiding this in your heart? Are you eating it? Are you digesting it? We spend so much time digesting and eating so many other things. And look at the promise of this text, what this person will be like. Verse 3, he or she will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Now, Jews just, they, they, they 
think in terms of pictures and metaphors. And, and so you have this wonderful metaphor of this tree planted by a stream because it's a profound picture of actually what it means to meditate. Do I know what it means to meditate? Think about this tree because the stream is Torah. It's God's word where God is and the roots are one's heart. So can you see this tree? I mean, what does a tree do with water? It doesn't just stare at it. It, it, it feeds on that water. It, its roots go deep in that water. It takes all that water in and it fills the entirety of the tree. And that tree doesn't just live. It doesn't just exist, but it grows and it bears fruit. And this psalm is here to say, this is what the godly are like. They are like the tree planted by the stream. And I want us to see this imagery because a tree is not a pipe where it's water in on one end and water out the other. It's a tree. The water goes into the roots and what comes out the other end is fruit. And it's fruit in season, which means it has to endure the seasons of fall, winter, spring, and summer. If there's a season of drought, it has to endure the famine. In other words, circumstances don't make or break the person who is rooted in God's word. Circumstances actually just become irrelevant because the tree is planted by the stream. And see, if that imagery isn't compelling, how about this imagery of the chaff? It says the wicked are like chaff. And I know right now not many of us have farmed that much, and so we don't really know what the chaff, chaff is. Uh, so let me just explain. The chaff is the husk of the grain. It's the exterior. It's what you see when you see the grain when it's in the field. You know, all golden and beautiful. Uh, but to the farmer, the husk, the exterior is actually worthless. So the way that the farmer gets rid of, of the chaff so he has just uh, the, the kernels of grain is he just throws both up into the air and the chaff is so light it just blows away like dust in the wind. Do you hear what this text is saying about the wicked? It's saying they're lightweights. Like chaff. They're just husks, hollow, nothing more than a shell. You look under the hood of their lives and there's nothing there. Oh yes, they can look really good on the outside. In fact, they can gain the whole world. But inside they are hollow, nothing more than a shell. And you know why? Because nothing is sacred. When you treat nothing as sacred, you become dust that just blows in the wind. Paul says the same thing about the wicked in Ephesians 4. He says they're tossed back and forth by the winds and the waves of this and that. It's because they have no roots. And because they have no roots, they have no glory. And glory in Hebrew literally means to be weighty, to be of substance. There's no substance to their being. 
And this is why we have verse 5, why they can't stand in the judgment, because the glory of God is going to come down on them, on these lightweights, and it's going to crush them. But the one who meditates on the Lord's Torah, think about how this psalm begins. He says, blessed. How blessed, how happy, how full of joy is this person. And then it ends with the Lord watches over. Most literally, it reads this. It, the Lord knows the path of the righteous. He knows it. And uh, we've talked about this before. Hebrew has two words for knowing. One, one word is to know something factually. The other is to know something experientially. The latter is the word used here, the word yada. Yada comes from the root word yad, which means hand, because when I touch something, it also touches me. We are both informing each other. It's knowledge that comes from connection. That's why this word is used uh, when it says something like, and Adam knew Eve and gave birth to Cain. It's this kind of intimate knowledge of, of, of the other. God knows the path of the righteous. He knows them intimately. And this hit me this week. This is just like the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the word blessed. And just like the Sermon on the Mount, uh, both of these also talk about God knowing. In fact, Jesus, what he says is, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you claim to, to know me, but, but I never knew you. It's because Jesus also says, my sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And so we make such a big deal about knowing God, and rightly so, but maybe the bigger question is, does God know you? And how do you know? He knows intimately those who are walking his path. Do you have roots? Where are your roots going right now to find water? Where are you placing your heart? Are you happy? Are you satisfied? According to the Bible, according to this psalm, there are two kinds of people in the world, the godly and the ungodly, just like there are two kinds of trees. One tree that's rooted in the streams of water and the other that has no roots and just blows away. Our money won't root us. Our earthly accomplishments won't root us. Our pleasures won't root us. Everything in this world will just blow away. But the word of the Lord will stand forever. So eat the book. Eat it. Let's pray. God, just thank you that you have made yourself known to us, that you have revealed yourself to us, and that you have revealed your path, and the path that you have revealed is life, the abundant life. God, I just pray that you would cause our hearts to crave what you've made our hearts to crave, 
God, that we would, we would take this in, God, that we'd be desperate for you, 